This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 7th of December 2021 at home in Wicklow. And it is an exploration and celebration of three great female works of art from very recent years. So I talk at length um, in a sort of interconnected way about two films and one book. The two films are Jennifer Fox's The Tale from 2018, um, Greta Gerwig's 2019 film version of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, and finally the book A Ghost in the Throat by the Irish bilingual poet Diren Nigrifa, which came out last year. These works, these female texts, are all in their own ways explorations of femininity, of womanhood, of sisterhood, and in some cases of motherhood. And they are powerful female visions they are powerful demonstrations and iterations of female art making and truth telling and storytelling and i'm a huge fan of all three and the episode is a discussion of what constitutes a female text and it's a discussion of what makes these works of art so good and so resonant in my opinion I also discuss my own perspectives of femininity, uh, the upbringing I had um, and how I continue to view women and the female, the female what? The female entity, the female presence, the that the other half of the planet that uh, (laughs) I share existence with and that's all it's all it's all coming up it's 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 a fat episode um there's a lot being said by me and i try to to honor i try to honor those works and honor the female voice and honor female texts and i hope you enjoy it so uh yeah get stuck in i'll see you there real soon not gonna change my mind Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. Welcome, how are you? Did you survive the old storm? That's right, Storm Barra descended, descended on our little island and tore the shite out of the place. Uh, Pretty scary, in fairness. Uh, Luckily, where we were... um, not as bad as elsewhere uh so but 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 i i saw i saw i saw that uh damage was wreaked not too far from us and in other spots around the country so anyway i hope you i hope you stayed safe wherever you were and uh, we'll spare a thought for uh, our friends across the irish sea um because they're they're next i guess um so where to begin today how about a little tale of heroism my own (laughs) my own heroism thank you very much not yours 
mine. So there I was last Friday. I'd gone out and retrieved Christmas trees from a dark field on a dark night and brought them back thinking I was a legend. And in I walked proud as punch. But my wife was in a state of distress. Not undress, but distress. Which dress? Distress. Distress. And our little kitten, the marketing assistant, Ruby, had gone missing. She had somehow managed to escape the bounds of the house and was out at large on a stormy night. Uh, a lesser storm than Storm Barra, but uh, a rough night nonetheless. The rain was falling and the wind was blowing and it was dark and cold. And my wife had been all around the place looking for her and no sign could she find. And then I came home and my wife was not pleased, very concerned about our little kitten, worrying about the kitten, worrying what she would tell our daughter the following morning. And so off I went and had a look out there in the dark with my little head torch and I couldn't find her either. Now, the older cat, Marlon, the head of marketing, she came out with me, not because she was looking for the uh, the kitten, because she doesn't really have much time for that kitten, but just for a, an evening stroll, to use the uh, the facilities, so to speak. And as I was calling for the kitten, I could hear meowling, and I wasn't sure. I thought, is that is that the old cat? Is that Marlon? And then I I, I didn't hear it anymore. I went back into the house, and my wife was like, I'm sure I can hear her. I think she's down at the back, outside the back of the house. And so I went down that end, hopped over the fence. My wife met me there. And sure enough, sure enough, we could hear the little mewling, the little mewling of the kitten. And I cast that little head torch around and I looked up. And peeping over the edge of the shed... The large shed that sits on the property, peeping through the ivy leaves that are killing that wall, end gable wall of the shed, I saw two little eyes peeping back at me. And there was Ruby, cold and scared and shaking and mewling. And I leapt into action. I had no ladder. That didn't stop me. Up that wall, I clambered. I scrambled. I scaled. Uh, I couldn't find a foothold, but I managed to sort of hoist myself up by uh, adhering to the wall, a la Spider-Man, gripping the ivy and wedging myself. There's a little telegraph pole there. I kind of wedged that, I had that at my back as I coated myself in creosote, <laughs> just in case uh, someone tried to set fire to me um, or wanted me. Actually, creosote would be flammable, wouldn't it? So rather, in case I was going to rot out there in the rain, uh, the creosote was marking me as I clambered up and I just couldn't quite get high enough to grab the kitten and she was kind of taking a look at me and backing away and coming back to take a look and then I finally thought right I can feel this ivy is not going to hold so I went for one big grab I got her caught her sort of crushed her temporarily with my hand against the roof of the shed and at that very moment the ivy came away from the wall and I fell and I fell hard, straight down. I didn't come away from the wall, I went straight down. My shoe came off, banged my foot, banged a finger, got a nice little adrenaline rush. But I had kept hold of the stray kitten and she was clutched to my chest. 
probably terrified herself but she was safe and we had her back in the house in moments as I limped my way through the house I was in my wife's eyes a total legend not that she used that phrase I was in my wife's eyes a hero not that she used that phrase either but I know she felt it deep down in her core I know she felt it and I was pleased I was pleased with myself I was pleased to get the little kitten back so there you go Ruby was saved the night was saved and I I have to say I, <laughs> I didn't I still don't quite feel right I hurt my shoulder in the process of that little rescue mission and maybe it was a bit of karmic retribution for the uh for taking those Christmas trees from that darkened field on a Wicklow hill um I don't know I don't know. As I said to my cousin, it feels a bit immoral to pay for Christmas trees. I've been so used to just grabbing them from nature all my life. Apart from the 10 years in Melbourne, to be fair, there weren't handy there weren't handy fields to raid. There weren't handy forests just there, you know, in the backyard, so to speak. So um, trees were bought in the 10 years in Melbourne. But anyway, there you go. What can you do? So... This episode, I think, I hope, I think it's going to be a corker. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to doing it. And I did allude to it last week. And I'm just departing from my commitment to Christmas-themed episodes for December. Um, although in one of these works, there is uh, there's at least one, uh, if not two, very lovely Christmas scenes. But I want to talk about three really brilliant strong original interesting vibrant courageous works of female art and yeah the the this journey that i want to go on in this episode is really a discussion of the female voice it's a discussion of female expression it's a discussion of female stories it's a discussion of women. It's a discussion of female creativity. Uh, it's a discussion of female artists and female expression. And it is a discussion of, of female erasure and then art as a response to that erasure. And I'm going to sort of explore my own my own sort of relationship with how I have viewed women, um, you know, from a young age and how I've taken on, I suppose, certain perspectives or certain rhetoric about women, uh, what, I've, what I feel I've accepted as truth, what I feel I've incorporated into my own attitude to women um and yeah I, I sort of i don't want to i don't want to spare um i don't want to spare any kind of implication of my own um prejudices of my own blind spots of uh, I, i'm not I, I don't want to say misogyny because i i don't know maybe i am guilty of misogyny it's that's it, a pretty it's a pretty strong it's a pretty strong accusation to to level up myself i i i I'd rather absolve myself of that one, but I think fundamentally we're all capable of of that type of injustice, I suppose. 
um, in many different directions, not just towards women, but these sort of um, unconscious biases or inherited biases or cultural conditioned biases. Um, and I suppose I'm I'm willing to explore that in myself in the context of this uh, of this discussion. So, where to begin? Let me just name the three texts to begin with. So, I'm going to be talking today about two movies and one book. Okay, so the two movies are. The Tale from 2018 uh, by the director Jennifer Fox. So The Tale is her movie and it's her story. She wrote and directed it and it is a very confronting movie and she really strips herself bare in the movie. Laura Dern plays her plays a version plays a version of Jennifer Fox in the movie and it's fundamentally an exploration of her own remembering of being sexually abused as a young teenager and how she had stored that memory in a very particular place and sort of unremembered it or misremembered it or re- she reframed it as something that it wasn't and it's 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 as i say i mean it, confronting it's horrifying but it's it's a ferociously brave piece of work and it's a brilliant piece of cinematic storytelling and she breaks the fourth wall and she plays with our expectations and it is an explore, exploration of of memory it's an exploration of identity and it is a fearless exposure of herself and I had read about it a little bit before I watched it and I wasn't prepared for its power even having read about it when I sat down and watched it the first time I watched it a second time before doing this podcast just to sort of refresh my memory it's not an easy film to watch um but such you know such um I suppose such kind of great directing by her, such amazing work by her kind of brave cast of actors. And I'll go into the details um, in due course. But that is the first of the texts. The second one is Little Women from 2019, directed by Greta Gerwig. And she also wrote the screenplay, adapted the screenplay the screenplay from Louisa May Alcott's uh, beloved uh, book of the same name, Little Women. And I first watched Little Women last year and I was so enamoured of it that I had to sit down the following night and watch it again. I, I sort of, I found myself bewitched by it and my... <laughs> my cousin my cousin here at hashtag blessed uh, we were having a laugh um because it seems the admission my admission of having of, of this enormous admiration of this movie seems to open me to um accusations of um you know closeted homosexuality that that seems to be the the running joke that uh, i must be gay on some level if i'm liking little women so much um 
I, I mean, I don't know what to say to that. I, 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 I mean, it's. I took it in the spirit it was meant. It was not meant in any viciously homophobic way. I was going to throw in that disclaimer quickly, but um, I don't know. It's uh, is Little Women a chick flick? I'm going to discuss that in due course as well. I think it is an extraordinarily beautiful piece of work. Um, I have to say I'm not a huge fan of Greta Gerwig as an actress, but the two movies that she has directed to date, Lady Bird and Little Women, I, I think are fantastic. And what she achieved with Little Women, she sort of integrated Louisa May Alcott's own story and made decisions about how to present the events of the book and it's beautifully shot and beautifully costumed and designed and it's you know some of the the, the sort of the mise-en-scene the some of the the the, the, the scenes that they're they're absolutely painterly and it's just a beautiful looking film and it's beautifully acted and i don't know if i'm responding to it uh, i watched it again recently with my daughter um and my wife watched it. it was her second time to see it as well and yeah I, I i was no less bewitched than the first couple of times i watched it um it i don't know if i'm responding to it because i'm the father of a daughter my daughter's only eight i think she'll appreciate that film more as she ages uh but i think greta gerwig did an astonishing job with it and as a sort of a as a as a pin to to emerging female independence and this striving for an assertive female identity um and the and the wrestle with the assigned female roles at that time it's set during the time of the American Civil War so in the 1800s and the protagonist really the main the, the the person i think we're invited to identify with most is is joe march the the one of the the four daughters who who are the little women of the title and she is the sort of the firebrand she is the writer and she's kind of the proxy for louisa may alcott and just brilliantly brilliantly incandescently incandescently performed by Saoirse Ronan with such I don't know such um accessible palpable emotional yearning and honesty and openness and believability I just think she's a fantastic actress okay that's the second text we're going to come back to that the third text is a book that was published last year and it is called A Ghost in the Throat by the bilingual Irish poet Dirin Ní Grifa uh, published by Tramp Press a great independent Irish publisher and I had first come across Dirin Ní Grifa I think through kind of social media I'd see her name crop up and I'd stumble across her poems. Um, I'd heard a couple of interviews with her, and I'd, for some, I don't know how she came on my my radar. Um, I think I like her name. I just, I, I think that was the first thing I saw. I liked the name. And last year, obviously, when the book came out, she was 
you know, promoting it a lot and her name was popping up a lot and the book was popping up a lot and I finally got my hands on a copy a few months ago and started reading it and I I just, I, I found it absolutely brilliant. I finished it. I only finished it recently. Um, I didn't sit down and hit it in one sitting just with my various commitments. I haven't been a great reader uh, in recent years um, but I really wanted to persevere with this. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I loved her voice. I loved her honesty. And really, you know, really what the book is, it's it, it's kind of it's kind of a detective story in a way because it's her exploration of the there's a famous well it wasn't famous to me it was my first time to really come across it it was, certainly wasn't a poem I'd studied uh, when I was in school but there's uh, a famous Irish poem called Queena uh, Art Queena which is basically the, 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 the keening for Arthur uh, Arthur O'Leary so Queena Art Illyri. Uh, Queena is the Irish word for crying. Um, but it's, you know, we translate it, um, you know, as, as it sounds, as keening. Now, keening is a bit more specific than just crying because keening is when women grieve the death of a loved one. Like this is the, an, older, an old sort of Irish cultural tradition, I suppose, and the image that comes to my mind always is, you know, widows and mothers dressed in their widow's weeds, dressed in black shawls, fundamentally howling their grief to to the world over the death of a loved one. And that's keening. It, 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 it's a much more evocative, powerful word. But Queena Artideri is... It's a lengthy poem of 36 verses that was written in Irish by an Irish noblewoman in the 1700s. Her name is Eileen Dovney Connell. And her story was she fell in love with this dashing, this dashing man who made, you know, apologised to no one. He was a sort of a, a, a fearless kind of swaggering type who I, I, I feel, you know, from how Dern the Grief has explored the story that it was a very sort of lustful physical attraction and uh, you know a fierce attraction of of like-minded characters fiery characters and he he made enemies uh he made an enemy of the wrong man and he was fundamentally assassinated um shot down um and shot off his horse and his horse found its way back to Eileen Dove and she saw that it was covered in blood and she jumped on the horse and the horse led her back to her fallen lover and she found him there shot to bits and jumped down on top of his body and commenced drinking handfuls of his blood and then wrote the poem Queena Art Illyri and the poem was her, 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 her grief cry, her love cry, her, her, her rage cry, her condemnation of the murderers, those lesser men, and in particular the man who's, you know, who who commissioned his 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 assassination, and it's a, it's a 
it's a kind of a, a ferocious um visceral lament and exploration of her love and her desire and her her grief and her rage and she was pregnant with their third child at the time of his his death and during the grief of the poet she was also um was she now was she pregnant at the time of writing i'm not sure but she was certainly going through a very uh, a very challenging period of her mother of motherhood um her a baby her, her you know the baby that was born around the time of her doing this you know writing this amazing book had been born premature and very vulnerable and was in the you know uh, the neonatal intensive care unit in the hospital and she was waiting to be given permission to take her baby home and fundamentally she she kind of found this sort of connection of the vulnerable the, the vulnerable mother and she found a connection of of mother love and a connection of of sacrifice and the, the sort of the altruistic sacrificing of self to save another now in in um Eileen Dove's case of course she didn't manage to save her man although you could argue that his saving to posterity in her poem is 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 the, is a saving of a kind and really when I referred to the idea of the book being sort of a detective story, Deren Negrifa really reveals how she became obsessed with uncovering the full story of Eileen Dovney Connell, what happened to her afterwards, where could you know where where are the historical records of the rest of her life, what happened to her and uh, you know she interweaves the story with her own her own reckoning of her own sort of womanhood and femininity and motherhood and she incorporates the sort of the the the, the pedestrian mundanities of of the mothering life of running around after little kids and cleaning up after them and doing the dishes and washing clothes and leaving unfinished cups of tea and coffee around the place and being knackered wrecked all the time and and breastfeeding and and also part of her story was you know expressing milk to 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 donate to other mothers um and so she was in this i don't know i mean i i i think the way I, I received it or, or read it was, you know, she was almost in this kind of fugue state of incessant, you know, nursing, milking, mothering, tending, minding, caring. And to me, to me, as, you know, as an ever aspiring sort of creator and writer and communicator, I was marveling at the fact that throughout this you know, she began this kind of amazing journey of trying to create this work of art, this sort of auto-fiction, exploring her own life, going back in time, being a dogged investigator of every record she could find, every archive she could find to uncover more information about Eileen Dove and fill out the picture, fill in the empty spaces. And 
you know, for me, when I, I, I think then of these these three these three great texts that I feel I've responded to very strongly. I mean, on, on a fundamental level, they're all explorations of of femininity. They're all explorations of of womanhood, of sisterhood, of motherhood, and they all, in their own way, are dealing with this idea of of erasure and of you know and i want to say erasure they're talking about social erasure like you know women you know not being allowed to occupy certain spaces in society economic erasure as a consequence of that which will be a theme of little women uh one of the sisters is convinced look she can't choose a career she has to marry into money to find economic security um historic erasure becomes a bit of an obsession for during the grifa in a ghost in the throat because she finds that other members of Eileen Dove's family, her brothers, there are records of their lives and, you know, their exploits and their successes and failures and their deaths and the stories of their male children. But again, she's like, where's Eileen Dove's record? She's been erased. There's sexual erasure in Jennifer Fox's The Tale. And this is an interesting one. This is what makes that such a complex story because Jennifer Fox herself, as her way of dealing with the trauma, erased the the reality of that experience. She erased the fact that she was so young that effectively the sexual relationship she was having with this man was rape. And she was being groomed and manipulated and seduced in an extraordinarily sinister way. Um, and then there's there's cultural erasure. And cult, the cultural erasure, I think, arguably, is the, the, the reductive attitude that can be encountered when people talk about women's literature or women's fiction or female writers or that idea of like a chick flick. I mean, I remember um, I remember really, really enjoying Silver Linings Playbook, the David O. Russell movie, which is it must be about 10 years old now. And. It's kind of a you know, you know, comedy drama, um, and the two central characters are, you know, a man and a woman with serious mental health problems, and they're using medication to to cope. They're both dealing with trauma of different sorts. Um, one's played by Bradley Cooper, uh, the girl's played by Jennifer Lawrence, and ultimately becomes it becomes a love story, and it's a story of of recognition. And how they sort of find each other, and how they sound each other out, and how they, how they try to have, you know, make it happen. And it's very romantic, but it's fun, and it's very well acted, and I really like it. Uh, I'm happy to go back to it. But I remember saying it to a friend, a male friend. I was living in Australia at the time, and he claimed to be, you know, a big movie buff. He loved old movies, but he was totally dismissive of it. Ah, chick flick. And I was like, really? Is that a chick flick? I mean, I was thinking, like, why is it a chick flick? Because it's kind of emotional. <laughs> is is that is is it as reductive as that? Um, I in fact, I messed up. I meant to do a bit of research. I wanted, I forgot to do a bit of research into the. Is it the Bechdel test? Isn't that that test whereby you can determine whether a movie qualifies as a chick flick? Um, because certain things have to happen in the first five or ten minutes of the movie about sort of 
you know female characters that appear or what they talk about anyway i forgot to look it up to to clarify that but you can look at that yourself um i mean ah, chick flick i mean that you know it's a reduction isn't it and so when we reduce something we are actively deciding to 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 erase complexity i mean this is a running theme of the stuff i talk about on the podcast but you know that kind of reductive approach ah sure look it's this it's about it's it's about women so it's going to be about this it's going to be about feelings and it's going to be about i don't get enough of this or i want to assert my this or i want to assert my that or it's about nobody loves me or it's about whatever and that's totally reductive and it erases it erases the full picture it erases the full complexity and it erases it erases individuality it erases you know it erases that idea of sovereign individuality like all women are this this is what they're concerned with and of course that can that that's a two-way street um i certainly feel like when i was in my late teens early to mid 20s i encountered a lot of rhetoric from women i knew you know which was fundamentally you know all men are you know all men are this all men are that all men think with the, that friend of theirs that lives between their legs and you know I, I just I used to always kind of bristle a bit at it I mean like I understood I understood what they were saying but I felt well I didn't recognize those traits in myself and I I judged that rhetoric pretty harshly and and just as I would have been critical of myself if I endorsed the idea that all women are this and the, the, the reductive rhetoric that certain male friends might come out with. Um, and I just felt, I felt from a, I think I felt from a, I think I felt from a very young age. I just didn't have an issue with this idea that, that women had been relegated and eradicated in many ways throughout history. And it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like I was growing up. I mean, my mother, I think, has pretty solid feminist credentials. And she was the only woman in the house. I grew up with uh, three brothers, no sisters. So it was a house of men and a mother. And I don't think my mother was exceptional. I, I, I would have, I would, I would argue that many Irish mothers were strong characters, particularly women that came of age in the... Um, you know, in the the sixties, who would have been coming up at a very politicized time, who would have been educated and articulate and very much in tune with those early the you know those, that early wave of feminism and a changing kind of social and political landscape, and particularly in Ireland with you know I suppose. I feel like that generation of Irish men and women were the ones who, you know, the ones who started having families in the late 60s, early 70s. They were the ones that sort of broke the the Catholic yoke um, on Irish sort of, on Irish values and Irish, I and kind of Irish piety and like the, the hypocrisy and the repression um, of the Catholic of Catholic institutions in Ireland, that generation of Irish people, not all of them, of course. I mean, there were people who were very much on side, I suppose. 
but there were people who were sort of the the, the, the you know the, the liberators or the the social you know the social outliers or rebels and you I mean my parents were you know they were hippies moderate hippies I, I, I always feel um they weren't in the kind of the, the tree hugging camp as far as I know I haven't heard any of those stories but they were politically aware and politically awake and I don't know I mean you know the point I'm trying to get to is there were prevailing attitudes in my house that it was just I, I just felt it was understood it, I, I, I didn't feel I was being preached at by by my mother um I wouldn't say my father has massively uh, <laughs> massively feminist credentials, but he certainly knew how to behave, I suppose. Let's put it that way. Um, but I certainly grew up with a sense... I don't know. I think I grew up with a sense that I didn't hesitate to believe that there had been injustice. I didn't hesitate to believe that women had had a hard time. And I don't know if that was informed by the movies that I was watching or how I perceived women in, in movies or how I perceived the women, the adult women in my life, because certainly, you know, my mother and the, the, you know, the adult women who came into the house, I felt, you know, I, I think I was fond of all of them. I felt they were all strong characters. They were all interesting characters they were all loud. <laughs> they were they were all loud characters. And sure, why wouldn't they be? You know, uh, th- these were women, as I say, who would have been you know growing up in coming of age in the the sixties, starting families in the seventies, um, and yeah, they were vibrant and attractive and unashamed and. I was like, yeah, cool. That's what women are. And I was, it was all good. It was all good with me. Um, and in in that, I'm, I'm trying to contextualize my, 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 my attitude here because I feel, you know, in recent times, there's been, you know, sort of, there's, there's kind of pushback and, and backlash, you know, with whatever wave of feminism there is now. And maybe it's become a bit, um, a bit confused or watered down by woke politics and culture wars and identity politics, and you know you maybe have somebody like uh, like the Canadian academic and thinker psychologist Jordan Peterson, who's arguing that no, there's no there's no social injustice. Women just needed to assert themselves more, which ah, I just think God, it's just so disingenuous. Um. You know, I just no. I, I kind of go, are you serious? Uh, just not accepting that there were, you know, institutions of power and uh, gatekeepers, and there were, um, you know, cliques and um, you know, male male corridors of power and male structures of power that were absolutely built on exclusivity and the you know ex- you know excluding and excluding women and excluding whatever excluding i don't know excluding uh you know people of color or excluding 
you know, people of certain, you know, of certain religious persuasion or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't hesitate to, to, to validate any of that. I, I think history backs that up. And so then you look and you look at someone like Louisa May Alcott and you think, well, she was an early suffragettist and she was a feminist and she was an educator and she was a writer and she was an independent woman. And I go, that was all against the tide of fashion, against the tide of expectation and against the tide of ascribed roles. And like, that's a thing, isn't it? Like the, you know, socially the ascription of roles and the ascription of meaning and the ascription of significance and who was doing the ascribing and historically um you know historically if we're looking at kind of you know the last couple of hundred years or more in the western world we're talking about men kind of going no this is your role this is our role and that again is a form of erasure and it's it's a, it's a, you know, it's a misdistribution or an inequality of of power, um, and I think, again, if we're looking at the connective tissue of these three texts that I'm talking about today, they are all searches or quests for identity, um, and they're all searches and quests for for meaning and understanding, and they all speak to a recognition of earlier models of earlier exemplars of and they all speak to recognition of earlier pain or earlier struggle or earlier rage and these artists so jennifer fox and greta gerwig and Diren negrifa they have created these brilliantly distinct works that make those experiences and make those quests and make that recognition so visceral and so palpable and they are of course of different tones and of different modes but the connective tissue is you know they are all female texts and you know this is something that Diren Negrifa returns to again and again and again. It's, it, it's, it's one of the great kind of themes of A Ghost in the Throat is what is a female text. And I think it's the poet in her that takes her into viewing so many aspects of her life and her experience and what she's reading about Eileen Dove as female texts so maybe even the, the the rings of the abandoned teacups or coffee cups like that's a female text abandoned because a mother is tending to her children maybe the spilled food on the floor is a female text she refers to a beautiful cardigan made by her mother for one of her children and the that each stitch is a female text she refers to her own body her, the scars from her caesarean deliveries as female texts, the lines on her face, under her eyes, the, you know, the, the bags, the fatigue as female text. Um, you know, it, 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 it's brilliant. I love it. I, I mean, I just find it really 
evocative um and you know it's deeply personal for you know for Darren Negrifa because it is a work of autofiction it is her imposing a narrative on her own story and imposing this amazing narrative on her own interiority and her own exploration of her sexuality her 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 changed status and you know as, as, by, by which I mean her changed status from non-mother to mother from non-mother wife to mother wife and you know her husband features in it throughout in you know in sort of you know in, 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 in peripheral but not unimportant stories in fact it was one of the stories that she shares in the book that I really loved and, and, and it really didn't it didn't directly have anything to do with her quest for meaning or the research into what happened to Eileen Dovney Connell. But she was relaying the story of herself and her husband being in the car one night coming back from a night out. And there's a clear suggestion that, um, you know, they're feeling, you know, a, you know, a, like a physical sort of desire for each other. And then they come across this car crash in the road. And there's a couple of cars stopped. There's people standing around. And she sees a woman lying in the road in the, the glare of the headlights. And they stop the car. And she instinctively just jumps out of the car. And her husband is basically telling her to stop. Like, don't get involved. And she runs over to the, the fallen woman. And sort of tends to her. And tries to reassure her. And brings her up off the road. And comforts her. And... You know, it goes on this little journey of pure, instinctive, impulsive, active solidarity. Because that is the only other woman in that space, in that moment. There's men standing around, not looking after her. And she just goes, no. Like, like a force that wasn't going to be stopped. And it was her mothering force and her nursing force that you know, was, was driving it. And she gets back in the car and puts the seatbelt back on. And it's clear that the husband is kind of furious and thinking you've just put she's just put herself in danger being out in the road. More cars are going to come. And, you know, the grief, the grief sort of admits feeling, you know, she admits feeling that kind of sting of her and maybe a sting of guilt, perhaps, at her husband's anger, but also like. Ah, you know, feck off with yourself kind of thing that she's not going to apologize for her sisterly act. Um, and they drive on and go home and it's just brush teeth and go to bed and go to sleep. And I found that really moving. I don't know why I found it really moving. There was something about her, her great act of sort of empathy and care and, and altruism and sacrificing herself a bit sacrificing the the potential night with her husband potentially sacrificing herself putting herself into that dangerous situation um i don't know i found it admirable and touching and moving um um but what that's just one episode from the book i don't know what (laughs) i mean i suppose i suppose the connection negrifa was making with that moment was maybe it was an echo and I mean echo, this idea of echoes through time. It was an echo of her her tending to that fallen body, that victim of an accident. 
um, that person laid low on the ground and vulnerable and you know potentially you know someone who's close to death that was the the echo was with Eileen Dove leaning over her fallen man and tending to him um and this is what you know this is one of the things that was resonating with her and so like that was the point I was making the idea of recognition of something from before recognition of earlier experience an earlier female experience so there's a an artistic solidarity but see i never mind the artistic it's it's just it's a female solidarity it's continuing the chain and i think negrifa would argue it's continuing the text it's continuing the telling of the female story um and look i'm going to digress here for a moment because i i don't want to i mean i said i'd explore my own complicity in female erasure um and i was reminding myself several years ago on my website i wrote a piece which was called no fixed address and the theme of the piece was not i was trying to kind of explore this idea of where we live and not in terms of bricks and mortar not in terms of the houses or apartments we inhabit but rather what existential space do we live in and i I came up with this idea that like I was kind of stripping myself back and thinking my own existential bent was towards striving that like, you know, I was a striver, striving for meaning, striving for understanding and probably, you know, there was definitely an implication of artistic and philosophical striving there and probably, you know, I was probably trying to kind of ennoble myself and, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to say here, like, you know, when I, wrote when i write pieces for the website it is a moment of artistic expression so i never see them as permanent truths i never see them as a permanent reflection of my you know of my thinking of my of my thought i see them as that's where my head was at at that moment and for me that's the artistic reality and that's the the expression of something then in that moment that's real and that's the offer that's the offer to connect with a reader that's the offer to connect with an audience in that moment and i have written subsequently on the website and i've kind of gone i don't look back at my pieces and try to correct them i don't look back with shame i don't look back and cringe um or maybe i'm no, sorry i think i'm saying i do look back and sometimes cringe but i'm not going to edit i'm not going to correct and redress because it was a moment it was a moment of truthfulness then and i let it stand and i know in my thinking i was thinking of that specific post that i just referred to because when i said about myself oh my my active mode my active existential mode is striving um i then referred to my wife and I was like, hmm, I think maybe my wife's existential mode is caring. And at the time, in that moment, she'd been a mother for a year, so we'd been parents for a year. And maybe that's what was dominating my perception of my wife. But I kind of subsequently, you know, over the years, I've kind of, that, that's always niggled at me. And I felt, Jesus, was that an act of erasure? Was that me ascribing narrative and significance to my wife's core state in a public forum 
I'm kind of going, yeah, my wife, she's a great little wifey. She looks, and she's a great little mammy and she looks after our baby and she's a great carer. That's what she does. She's very caring. And, you know, she cares about her family. She cares about her sisters and she cares about her brother and her mammy and daddy. And she's a great worrier and a carer. And I just kind of, I'm sort of castigating myself internally. And I think I have done over the years. I, I've stumbled over that. It just props up in my subconscious. I'm like, oh, right, there it is again. And I just, I'm, I'm asking myself now, was, was did I, did, in that ascription of my wife's existential bent as caring, I think I just reduced her to something that completely disregarded these other aspects of her personality that are no less important, that are perhaps more important. And I ask myself now, did I, her, did I erase her own striving? Did I erase her own desire to make meaning of her life? My wife is an artist. She's a musician. She's a singer. She's a songwriter. She's now a music therapist. And at that time, a, you know, a year into being a mother, you know, she was embarked on a master's of music therapy. She was studying. She'd gone back to education uh, to do a postgrad, a really demanding course. Being a mother, she had she was unwell after she became a mother. And there were some very scary health moments. And she got back up on her feet and went back and studied and was still being a great mother. And I was like, she's caring. I was like, oh, my God. You know, she was kicking ass. And, you know, in spite of her fears and in spite of, in spite of kind of a mortal existential wound that she'd endured because of a difficult pregnancy, because of a traumatic childbirth, because of becoming very ill after our daughter arrived. In spite of all of that, carrying that weight and carrying that, that collateral damage, she, and, you know, and, the internal pressure that she was living with um you know as well as having you know a husband in myself you know doing my best to be you know trying to be a good father trying to learn how to be a good father just as she was trying to learn to be a good mother but also maybe like a lot of new fathers at a certain point in that journey kind of going what about me i'm still you know i'm still a man with needs and i still love you and i've still got my desires and my longings and like that, another aspect of pressure that my wife had to endure. And in all of that, she's going out and over the subsequent years, completed her master's, did really well and went back out into the working world, having had a long career as a professional musician and as an original, you know, songwriter and artist and going, no, I'm going to do a pivot and I want to go into music therapy and I want to, you know, pursue that craft and that service and that identity and that was all happening in front of my eyes and I came up with caring and I kind of go I don't know I mean and, and this is I'm you know I'm asking myself now is this is this a male female divide and so what I was seeing was a woman a new mother reprioritizing and going this is my focus to take care of my baby as best I can. And I'm also going to, you know, pursue a new career and re-educate myself because this long term will be better for the family and better for my baby in the future. And so she was reprioritizing and deprioritizing herself because maybe there was a part of her that was still like, no, I'm a singer, I'm a songwriter, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, and I still want to pursue that. And 
she made a decision and similar in a way to 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 i mentioned earlier jennifer fox in the tale she went in she she committed an act of self erasure she erased the true her true sort of victim the victimhood of her younger self she erased that from her narrative until she was forced to confront it later in life and that's what the film explores and goes into it tremendous honesty is that crisis of oh my god this is what actually happened and i don't know like you know in in that case there's and i referred to it earlier that act of erasure was about self-preservation because that was an act of erasure to to sort of hermetically seal trauma and keep it at a safe distance so she locked it into a particular memory and she explores the unreliability of that memory in that story and that i suppose that is not an exclusively female experience i mean anyone who is trying to you know repress uh trauma um or damage or i you know or you know or or horror from their their lives you don't have to be female to go on that journey um but you know that is what jennifer fox did or it seems that's what she certainly portrays to us in that movie and laura dern plays her so well laura dern incidentally also in little women as the mother of the girls I mean, Laura Dern is having a major kind of moment. She was also in Marriage Story in 2019. Uh, didn't she get an Oscar for that as the very uh, aggressive lawyer who um, represents Scarlett Johansson's divorcing wife um, at the expense of poor old Adam Driver? Uh, but anyway, uh, that's a digression. So, I mean, just to just to kind of return to to my my wife for a second and my own my own mm, i don't know like well do i look at that and go that was a blind spot do i look at that and go this is a very male thing to do so um you know the male mind is i'm not going to and this speaks back to during the grief as unfinished cups of tea and coffee I'm, you know, my, you know, the male mind is, no, I'm not going to not finish my coffee. I'm going to finish my coffee and then I'll get to my daughter after I finish my coffee. And don't get me wrong, my daughter's eight now, so I'm not talking, you know, when she was a baby, that wouldn't have been my, my, my process. Um, but I'm, you know, I am, I'm just looking at that. I'm looking, I mean, I've asked myself these questions, I've explored these you know these choices or these modes of behavior are these you know the male frame and the female frame and you know is that yeah and, and you can hear me hesitating here i'm hesitating because like what the hell do i know what do i know i'm not a woman i'm not a mother so this is pure speculation on my part it's pure conjecture but you know i've observed my wife closely because of course i love her and i care about her and it hasn't been her motherhood journey hasn't been that easy and she i think part of what she found challenging and this is probably true for many mothers who maybe become mothers a little bit later in life which is you know more and more a trend these days that there is an erasure of identity 
and a loss of the pre-mother self. And then it's how then do you reconcile past self with new self? How do you recover or reclaim the, the woman you thought you were with the woman you are now? And then there's also into the mix the... And I mean, I did touch on this. Um, I have touched on this before. Uh, this idea of, you know, of, of, of the public mother, of the perform the performative mother of the social media mother and mother shaming and then mother guilt you know i'm a bad mother and i mean that's something that i heard during the grief refer to in um maybe she didn't use that phrase exactly but it maybe it was a bad parent or failing or she was being interviewed by Roisin Ingle. And in fact, I think I'll throw in a link to there was a great podcast. Roisin Ingle was interviewing her about a ghost in the throat around a year ago on um, the an Irish Times podcast. Um, and she's a, she's a great speaker. She's, a, yeah, again, just that kind of authenticity and her openness, her honesty, her frankness, her self-deprecation, just a really attractive character. And the, the few poems of hers that I've come across, I've really liked um and I'll, I'll give a shout out she has a new collection of poetry out uh, at the moment um but that idea of mother guilt i feel i recognize that and i've seen that i've seen it in my own wife i've seen it in other female friends that i know and i always try to challenge it in terms of i, I try i'm not trying to invalidate what their experience is or what their feeling is but i just think ah here listen come on now you know the idea that you know the the idea that you can be shamed or feel this sense of i've i've failed because of the the, the pressure to be you know an uber mum um and you know the same way as a dad i mean i've spoken frankly about my own failings as a as a father or, or what i feel are my you know my my weak areas my kind of my fissures um and cracks in my my fathering performance or my fathering role or how I interact with my daughter at times I'm aware I'm aware that we all fail and I kind of go do I feed that do I feed that sense of failure with guilt and let's be fair it's not a particularly male dynamic is it I mean and that's the point so we're getting back to you know, where's the where's the male text that says you're a crap father? Where's the male text that says we're all bad fathers? And it's not really out there in the way that the female text is out there in everyday life of, you know, the tut tut tuts of, oh, look at her not being a good mother. And that is something that women take on, I guess. And the way that so many ascribed roles to women are taken on because society says you have to be this. You, you have to retain your, your, your beauty. You have to retain your sexuality. You have to retain your dignity. You have to retain, you know, so many things that society says this is what you should be. And then, you know, you become a mother and that experience, you know, <laughs> you've actually given away your life force. You've given, a, you know, women give away their life force to create this other being. And there's a like a chemical, biological, 
um, I, I, like what's the right word? I mean, it's you know, it, it, it's it's a force, isn't it? It's a chemical, biological, gravitational force that is monstrous and beautiful and irresistible and I don't think it's something that men can actually relate to I mean intellectually I can understand it but you know I have you know (laughs) I have my own what I would maybe put in a similar category my feelings about my daughter but I recognize it can't possibly be the same she hasn't come out of my body I haven't lost myself you know by contributing to her conception and i haven't carried her through the you know nine months of pregnancy um and i haven't had my body altered and changed um it's a different thing i mean you can't you can't shilly shally around that it's like call a spade a spade um so What I'm saying, I suppose, is that I take my hat off to to the mothers and I take my hat off then to the artists who express that or explore that. Um, and certainly it's central to Dira Negrifa's uh, A Ghost in the Throat. And it's maybe less central in a way in Little Women. It's less central in the tale, although... Uh, there is the exploration of Jennifer Fox's relationship with her mother, brilliantly played by Ellen Burstyn, who I suppose as the, and in fact she's, I can't think of the actress's name who plays her as the younger mother uh, in the flashbacks, um, but portrayed as maybe a sort of, you know, slightly emotionally unavailable mother as a younger mother, but there's, there's certainly guilt on the, on Ellen Burstyn's part as, as the mother of to the adult yeah, Jennifer Fox in the movie but I think the speaking of guilt again like I think the, the, the idea that I find myself resisting is that if this sense of guilt is coming from from other people so if you're a mother and you feel like other mothers are going to shame you or judge you um, or if the feeling of the, the feeling of guilt is from a sense of of social expectation or a sense of this this, this you know this, this historically high bar that's handed down to women uh, once they've become mothers I just think get all of that crap out of your head and clear a path for a motherhood of your own making um, you know, ho- I, you know, again, this is all, you know, when, when I make statements like this, I'm not talking about extreme scenarios or wild dysfunction or abuse or I'm just talking about, you know, I, I think there's a there's a mean, there's an average. And that's what I'm speaking to. Um, yeah, just, you know, it, it, it's tough enough. It's tough enough trying to do a good job without adding to the burden without throwing guilt into the mix i'm just like feck off with that come on now you know just you're 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 doing your best and uh, you don't need to listen to any of that that stuff and 
I don't know. I, I, I don't know what that. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that looks like. If that, if that requires, you know, an articulation of that commitment in some way. But then I look at, I you know, I look at these works of art and I go, they're an articulation. They're an articulation of of female power. They're an articulation of female voice, and female expression. And they're going, look, this is what happened. Look, this is what it's like. Look, this is how it feels. And of course, two of them, the the tail, obviously, and a ghost in the throat, they have that autobiographical aspect to them. And Little Women, you know, it's a work of fiction and it's a beloved, I think mostly pitched as a sort of a a children's book, really, is it? Um, I mean, and it's not like I was a huge fan of Little Women. <laughs> <laughs> as a, as a as a child i was aware of its existence that was it nothing else and then in 1994 the australian filmmaker gillian armstrong did her version of little women and it was a sort of a stellar cast uh susan sarandon as the mother winona ryder as joe march claire danes was in it kirsten dunst as the young amy played as an older woman by samantha mathis um, Trini Alvarez Gabriel Byrne was in it Eric Stoltz um, who am I missing Christian Bale Christian Bale as Laurie the doofus next door the fop um, I have to say the, the, the that's the one aspect of Greta Gerwig's version um, that I found myself resi- that I find myself resisting I'm a little bit out on Timothée Chalamet uh, he I don't know. He can't seem to disguise or, or mask his, you know, his his modernity, like his body language in um, Little Women. It doesn't seem to fit. Like his 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 you know his deportment, his um, his posture, the way he walks. He just looks like he's slumping, you know, slumping and slouching and loping through a mall in L.A. And I find it really irritating. Uh, now he it kind of he kind of played to type in Ladybird, and I must say I was quite taken with Call Me by Your Name, the sort of the the the, the gay coming of age movie set in a beautiful Italian setting. Um, and and I just watched him recently in Dune, uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, and he was quite good in that, but. I do have the sense, I mean, there's always, there's always a new actor or a new actress who is the actor or actress of the moment. And he is definitely that actor at the moment. And I'm just like, all I'm seeing is a skinny, Byronic, floppy haired fop. Um, And he's got a bit of a moody thing um, and a bit of a sort of a, a sensual thing. But, I'm waiting to see the chops. I'm waiting to see the acting chops. Like he's just a pretty thing at the moment and not, I don't find him that interesting from an acting point of view. Although he is, I have to, you know, I, 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 as I say, in Call Me By Your Name, he's quite a lovely character. Um, And then, I don't know, like a female equivalent. I mean, there's a young Australian actress, young, I mean, she's in her late 20s, early 30s now, Elizabeth Debicki. Um, who was in Steve McQueen's Widows and she was good in that and she is in The Tale Jennifer Fox's The Tale as the riding instructor 
that the young Jennifer Fox goes to for her riding lessons and stays with. And that's how she meets the running coach, who's an older man who, and it's him that seduces her. Um, And he is, I mean, I suppose chillingly played. I mean, he's not, you know, he's, he's not portrayed as a monster. And this is the thing. This is what's so powerful and effective about the tale. He is played unnervingly by Jason Ritter, the son of the late John Ritter, as a really warm, gentle, attractive character. And like we're seeing him through the young Jennifer Fox's eyes um, and refracted through the Elizabeth Debicki character as well, who he is sleeping with. Um, But he's he's presented as being just yeah just this attractive um very sort of seductive character and of course that's what he does he seduces the young jennifer fox and she's only 13 and you know again some very confronting scenes are presented and the young jennifer fox is played brilliantly by a young canadian actress uh, isabel nelis um yeah, astonishing, an astonishing performance. Um, and just to recall recall uh, the, the idea of erasure and, and sexual erasure, when Jennifer Fox confronts the man uh, later in life, he's an older man, um, played for that one scene by John Hurd, um, famously the, uh, the father of Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Um, and... In that very tense scene in the movie when Laura Dern, um, as Jennifer Fox, confronts him, he just, like, he goes in for like he goes in for a kiss. And it's, oh, it's awful because she's like, no, like, I know who you are. I know what you did. I remember. I remember. And he's been honoured at some public event and she confronts him and it's a really awkward, horrible, uncomfortable scene. And he just denies everything. That didn't happen. You know, it didn't happen. Um and you know again what you're looking at there then is his erasure like his act like he's actively trying to erase her truth but then you're looking at him the character and thinking okay has he actually erased what he did has he normalized it in his head and she was probably one of many um and has he has he placed that memory in a certain place as well i didn't do anything wrong um, you know, it was the seventies. Everybody was doing it. It was a time of looser sexual mores and uh, all the rest. Um, but yeah, one yeah again, just a you know a great cast. And speaking of great casts, go to Little Women and brilliantly cast. And as I said earlier, Saoirse Ronan is the driving force of that movie. In terms of what we see on screen, I guess you know Greta Gerwig. It's her vision, and it's a beautiful vision. And some of those scenes, uh, like the scene on the beach, it's like, you know, they're like impressionist paintings. The scene of Amy and Laurie leaving Paris and you see the grand house and the grand garden in the background. Just stunning, like beautiful. Um, But again, a great cast. Uh, You have Emma Watson and um eliza scanlon and florence Pugh making up the rest of the sisters um so yeah really well done really well done the men in that movie uh, you know chris cooper doing a lot with very little you get you know older actors and they just knock it out of the park 
Um, yeah, I'm trying to think who else. From the, uh, yeah, that the French guy. I don't know his name. Plays the the love interest for Joe March. He's quite a charming character. Very French, just very frank and outspoken, and matter of fact. Um, some very funny scenes ensue as a result of that. Bob Odenkirk as the dad, and Meryl Streep. Not a not a man. <laughs> Meryl Streep, just doing that great Meryl Streep work that she does um, as the kind of rather severe and cranky rich aunt who chooses her favourites amongst the daughters and you know plays with their affections um, with the promise of financial return um, so I don't know I don't know where I don't know what the conclusion is to all this I suppose can I return to the idea of what is a female text and I don't know I mean part of me is like these are just great stories they're just great stories told brilliantly by brilliant women and why wouldn't you be interested um you know what's a male text is you know philip roth who i've read a lot of you know ernest hemingway um i mean henry miller are they male texts um you know vladimir vladimir you know nabokov you know is he is he a writer of male texts um you know, it, does it become very gendered? Is it does it become very sexual? Uh, I don't know, but you know, female text. Are we talking about move? You know, filmmakers like the French director Catherine Brea? Are we talking about Jane Campion? Are we talking about uh, Gillian Armstrong? Are we talking about female writers like Louisa May Al- Alcott? Are we talking about Irish female writers like Patricia Scanlon or Anne Enright or Maeve Binchy? Um, are we talking about the classic English writers, you know, like Jane Austen or the Brontes? Um, a female text. I mean, my position is why wouldn't you be interested if it's a story told well, if it's an expression of something real, and if it is a great piece of art, why would you not be interested? What does it matter if you're male? What does it matter if you're straight, if you're gay, if you're young, if you're old? If you like art, if you like truth presented in art, if you like to be taken on that journey, why would you not be as interested in a female text as a male text? Why would you not be as interested in a gay text or a white text or a black text? you know whatever it doesn't matter does it i mean this is this maybe we need to get past all of this but for me it's a no-brainer and i am interested and i will continue to be interested and i don't want great art to be missed out on and i heartily recommend these three fantastic female texts that i've been speaking about today um, I mean, Darren Negrifa asks the question in her book, she asks the question, would would Eileen Dovney Connell's amazing poem, Quina Artillera, would it be more remembered? Would it be more sanctified? Would it be more canonical? Would it enjoy more prominence, more literary acclaim if it had been written by a man? And... You know, that might be rhetorical, but I mean, I, I feel, yeah, she's probably right. I mean, she doesn't bang on about it. I mean, she's, that's not the axe she is wielding. That's not the axe she has to grind. And I don't come away from a ghost in the throat going, oh man, dear in the grief, she's got issues. You know, 
I don't feel that at all. She's she's great. She's uh, I just I, I I love her through this piece of work, and really admire what she's achieved with it. Um, but yeah, it it, it really it's her, it's her. She's driving that question explicitly. What is a female text? And she sees a female text everywhere, and a female text to her fundamentally. This is what I come away with. A female text is where women live, where women leave their mark. That's a female text. And all we need to do is open our eyes and look for it and appreciate it, value it, recognize it, see it for what it is. And it doesn't have to be deified, reified, sanctified. It's part of the world we live in. And listen, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a woman. (laughs) So maybe all men are female texts. How about that for a conclusion? And listen, just for just for the sake of it, I just want to read a a verse. And I'm going to stumble because my Irish is not great. And it's been so bloody long since I was had any level of reasonable fluency. But I just want to sort of honour Diren Nagrifa's work as a bilingual poet. And I want to, to read a verse from, from uh, her translation of Queen Artillery. And uh, I'm going to read it in Irish and I'll read the, the, the English translation she offers as well. And forgive me if there's anyone listening who's a fluent Irish speaker, forgive my stumbles. Um, but I just want you to hear the language because it, it's lovely. Um, this is verse seven from Diren Negrifa's version of Eileen Dovna Gunnell's Queena Art Illyra. And it's her moment of. Her moment of realisation that something terrible has happened to her man. And she says in Irish. Macharahu gadangan is near credis riv dod varav garhanig cum da koppel is a shrintelega tolov is fwil de cree er a lacken sheer gatilleth granta mara miha id she is id shasav. Hugus lame gatarsig, on dara lame gagata, on trio lame er da koppel. I think it's magical. Now I stumbled over a line there. I, I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to revisit it. In English, what that comes, what what Darren Negrifa offers us is, oh my steady companion, never could I have believed you deceased, until she came to me. Your steed, with her reins trailing the cobbles, and your heart's blood smeared from cheek to saddle, where you'd sit and even stand, my daredevil. Three leaps I took, the first to the threshold, the second to the gate, the third to your mare. Ah, it's great. It's great, great stuff. Darren Negrifa, fair play to you. It's brilliant. I love it. Uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. And Jennifer Fox, also brilliant, The Tale. And Greta Gerwig, also brilliant, Little Women. See those films if you haven't seen them. Read that book if you haven't read it. That's uh, A Ghost in the Throat by Darren the Grief at Tramp Press from last year. And I intend to get it. I haven't read it yet, but I know it's out. It's her new collection of poetry. 
uh, to star the dark and that's from Daedalus Press so go and get some poetry into you go and get some female texts into you I hope to God I've made sense of all of this I hope I've done these women and their work justice um, yeah fair play I love it all and I am grateful I'm grateful to to be alive at this time to enjoy those works of art and to be in a place of receiving those female texts so well done those women keep it up I look forward to more and that is all so thank you so much for listening if you listened thanks for sticking with it Uh, I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard I hope I've piqued your curiosity to check out those great works of art Uh, I will be back next week with uh, Christmas movies I think I think next week I'm going to do my favourite Christmas movies Um, and remember if you're enjoying what you hear you can throw some love at the podcast on social media you will find the links in the description Uh, I will throw some links to some of the things I referenced today in the description also and if you want to throw some financial support at this independent uh, podcast which is something I hope to make a going venture financially speaking eventually uh, you can do so using the supporter link in the description wherever you're listening to the podcast or at patreon.com forward slash the clear out okay so there you go you take it easy and stay safe stay well stay warm and dry roll with the storms you can't fight that wind um and I will see you real soon. I'll be back next week with more. Okay, all the best. Take care. Mind yourselves. Bye-bye.